Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine, one of only seven podcasts on the internet, and I'm your host, Ken Levine. This week, very interesting guest, Shelley Herman is with me. She wrote a book called My Peacock Tale, T-A-L-E, Secrets of an NBC Page. Now, she has led a very interesting life. She was an NBC page and got a chance to hobnob with a lot of celebrities, and she has a lot of inside stories there. She also performed comedy with Andy Kaufman. She was an executive in the game show world. She hosted monster truck rallies on ESPN, and she's hosted eight infomercials. Like I said, very interesting guest this week and next. Shelley Herman is my guest on Hollywood and Levine. Well, my first question, Shelley, is what exactly does a page do? I guess people, when they think of an NBC page, they think of Kenneth on 30 Rock. <laughs> but <laughs> what does an NBC page do? Well, Kenneth was a fanciful character as to uh, the NBC page duties. Uh, in New York, uh, where 30 Rock, the TV show, was set, uh, they do actually have a desk for the page to sit at, and that person does kind of check people in uh, when they come backstage. But in Burbank, where I worked from 1976 to 1978, um, our duties included giving tours of NBC Burbank, and that was when they were doing The Tonight Show, Chico and the Man, Sanford and Son, Hollywood Squares, Password, Days of Our Lives the local news, all of that was housed within the NBC Burbank facility. And the other things that we got to do, including ushering the TV shows, is um, interact with the executives because the NBC page program differs from other studios because it's supposed to be an executive recruitment program. And we're given 18 months to try to meet as many people as we can to try to get that next leg up in the industry. So we did press tours. We took celebrities in limousines, places. We did little internships within NBC to learn about it. I, I worked in the story department where I read scripts and books to see if they were good to be a future NBC project. So it was a lot of things in a short period of time. 
And I imagine the pay was fabulous, right? High you know, six figures. <laughs> the pay necessitated several pages being roommates with one another. And also we had little side jobs that we also had to do. Um, I think I started at a buck 90 an hour. And by the time I left, I know by the time I left, it was $2 and 25 cents an hour. And my apartment rent had just gone up to $225 a month. So I remember those figures. And yet those were very coveted jobs. I tried very hard to become an NBC page, never got in. I tried very hard at CBS to be a CBS page and never got in. So uh, those were the jobs, you know, when you get out of college, uh, you know, and you want to break into the industry, it's like, man, that's your ticket in. And I I was always very envious of of you guys. Friend of mine who is a longtime writer, David Pollack, was a CBS page and he used to work the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh, cool. And and got to hand out Kent cigarettes to people. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's like, wow, I know somebody who was at the Dick Van Dyke show all the time. Like, what a cool memory that must be. And I'm sure for you, it must be the same thing. But before I start talking about that, I want to talk about an incident in your book where you flew to London (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and you were sitting next to to a gentleman take it from there well i i got the job at nbc and i knew i had two weeks before i began so i took my life savings which was 550 dollars, booked a pan am flight one of those all-inclusive packages where it's you know you see the whole town in seven days and there was this guy that always seemed to show up whenever I showed up. There's a red-haired kind of pasty-faced guy in not in a nice way, but kind of in a Jack the Ripper kind of way in London. <laughs> and uh, when we got on the plane to leave, uh, I introduced myself to him. And I said, you know, we've seen each other all over London. And uh, he, he said, yeah, my name is Corn, K-O-R-N. And I said, oh, well, there's a, a character in, in Catch-22 named Colonel Corn." And he said, yes, I've been meaning to look him up to see if we're related. Uh. So we sat next to each other on the plane. And then all of a sudden, while we're halfway over the Atlantic, watching the Alfred Hitchcock movie Family Plot, um, somebody at the back of the plane stands up to use the restroom and falls over and dies. So the flight attendant comes over the loudspeaker with her little cute British accent. Ladies and gentlemen, we seem to have a medical emergency. Is there a doctor on board? And sure enough, Jack the Ripper redhead stands up. And I said, you know, I think it's an emergency. We got to be careful here. He goes, no, no, I'm a doctor. And I said, you are? He says, yeah, I'm a dermatologist. I said, I don't think he has a rash, but okay, go. Let's see what you can do. And um, sadly, the gentleman passed away. And... um, we lost touch with one another. And at the end of the book, there's a very magical way all of this reconnected some 47 years after this event happened. Oh, okay. I love it. The teaser. And then there was somebody else that you were sitting next to. On the plane? On the return flight. Oh, someone, a- yeah. Oh, 
someone well, who's sort of in the business. Yeah, well, on the flight over, this guy chatted me up and said, I'm going to be working on a movie while I'm in London. Uh, do you want to come see us, you know, film the movie? And I was like, I'm going to be in showbiz in two weeks. I'm going to be at NBC. I don't need to go see a movie being filmed. I need to go to Stratford-upon-Avon and Stonehenge. And on the flight home, I was talking to him. And I said, how did it go with the movie? He said, oh, yeah, really, really well. Uh, you might be, want to be on the lookout for it. It was called Star Wars. It's George Lucas. It wasn't George Lucas. It was a guy who was one of the music supervisors on it. It wasn't John Williams. Ah, okay. Uh, but, but, you know, I one of those little lessons I tucked in the back of my head about, you know, when you're presented with an opportunity, perhaps you should take it. <laughs> okay, you and I have something in common. That we crawled around the uh, Topanga Plaza Mall in our misspent youth? Well, that... Absolutely. But um, we have stories of chauffeuring Zsa Zsa Gabor. Oh, you too? <laughs> I too, yes. Oh. Have a story of. So you were, what, you had arranged a limo and she was in it? And uh... Well, this, this happened to one of my page friends, Jeff Garrett. And um, his job was to sit at a table at the Rose Bowl game, and he had to reserve the table for Robert Wright, who was president of the network at the time. And um, sure enough, Zsa Zsa plops her big butt in one of the seats and won't move. And she's being very belligerent to Jeff. And um, Jeff says, please, you have to move. This is my job. I'm begging you. Please move. And uh, Lucy Arnaz comes by and sees what's going on. And she says, Jaja, uh, get up, leave, leave this man alone. And, and Jaja told Lucy Arnaz and my, and my page friend to F off. So uh, Lucy Arnaz came to the aid of one of the pages. <laughs> well, my Jaja Gabor story is when I was a student at UCLA, we had like a closed circuit television station and a talk show, like a celebrity talk show. And I was kind of an intern on that. And my job was if the celebrity guest didn't have their own transportation or didn't want to drive to UCLA, that I would provide the transportation in my 1966 Mustang. <laughs> and I, I went, I got Mo Howard, which was great. Cool. And, and I got Peter from the Peter Principle. And I had to get Zsa Zsa Gabor. And Zsa Zsa Gabor comes down and sees my car. And again, just picture this 1966 yellow Mustang. She sits in the back seat. <laughs> And I must say, I had fun with her because I was asking her all this dating advice. Oh, wow. Yeah. To, to, to get, you know, some idea of the world of romance as interpreted by, by Zsa Gabor. Was she a bit smitten with you as well? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I could have been one of her husbands. I, I missed out on the opportunity. <laughs> a I'm lot of people... Her- 
I'm imagining her crammed in the backseat of the Mustang with her with her knees up to her chin, trying <laughs> trying to act like she's being chauffeured. Yeah, someplace. exactly. I did not move the seat uh, forward to make it easier on her. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned how people have gone on from being a page, and several well known names used to be a page. Well, Let's rattle some of those off. Uh, pop quiz. Well, the youngest NBC page at the age of 15 was Peter Marshall, who went on to host Hollywood Squares. Wait, so he's like 100 now. So he was like an NBC page in 1911? uh, Well, the page program has only been in existence for 90 years. We're celebrating our 90th anniversary this year. But his sister, um, Joanne Drew, was already a famous actress, so she got him in. I mean, now you have to have at least a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of Arts degree. So unless you're Doogie Howser, you're going to be a little bit older to be a page. Um, Regis Philbin was a page. Hugh Downs, Chuck Barris, Richard Benjamin, uh, Aubrey Plaza, you know, somebody contemporary sure. who was a page. And, and it was lovely for her. She got to come full circle from, from ushering at Saturday Night Live to uh, guest hosting. So that was pretty darn cool. Uh, But mostly it was men back in the day because it wasn't until the 70s that the women were allowed to be pages. They they were guide-ets before that, and they were able to give the tours of the buildings. But, um, you know, thank goodness for Gloria Steinem and people like that who said, hey, maybe the women should be allowed to access to this too. Well, so cracking the glass ceiling meant that you could usher people into Chico and the man. Yeah, that's progress. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the writers who I worked with for many years on Cheers, Sherry Steinkellner, was also an NBC page, right? She was a page. And, you know, there's certain people when you first meet them and you say, like, well, this person's a dud. I never would have said that about Sherry. She hit the ground running. She she actually did a local commercial here in Los Angeles for the Movieland Wax Museum, where some people might remember the character Rosemary Kabibi. Uh, and the tagline for that was the lights are on and nobody's home. And she made a ton of money from that commercial. I mean, that's what could sustain her while she uh, was trying to go through the page program. And much to her credit, she didn't last very long because she figured out how to get the next step up in show business. And not only was writing with you, she she and her husband uh, were very active uh, with with the Groundlings and, and Instaplay. And she she always had something wonderful going and still does doing um, out-of-town tryouts for summer stock. That's right, at, at good speed, yeah. which is getting fantastic reviews. Uh, I'm going to do some name dropping here since that's a big part of the book, right? Is the different people that you got a chance to meet. Tell me about Andy Kaufman. Andy was one of the nicest guys I ever met. That's what everybody says. And as much as his persona and his act was about deceiving people, I always saw him as being somebody who got to the truth of a situation. And I saw that as being his art because he liked getting a reaction from people. And I worked with him. Well, I'll I'll start. It was, it was funny because I was still living at home because I couldn't afford an apartment when I first started as a page. And um, 
I'm of a Jewish heritage. So when my mother would answer the phone and be Andy Cook, <laughs> and she was <laughs> very excited to try to hook us up. And then I showed her his act on Saturday Night Live and she ran for the hills. So that <laughs> she wasn't trying <laughs> to set us up after that. But um, Andy would come in the commissary and just hang with the pages and just look at you with those beautiful blue eyes very intently of of just trying to get to what what the truth was of something and what was right. So he approached me about helping him do something at the improv. And he was my friend, Andy. So, okay, I'll go along with it. And we did a bit where I, I wore a wig and sat in the audience. And he told the audience that you can't count on showbiz to make money. So he's going to barber college and who wants a free haircut because you know, he's able to do that now. So I can raise my hand in the audience, go up on stage. We chat a little bit. And then Andy starts getting agitated and starts hacking away at the wig. And then somebody in the audience was like, hey, mister, you can't do that. And um, they get into a little verbal altercation. I run off the stage, pretend like I'm crying. And they do their little scuffle. And that's it. And we leave. So we're outside in front of the improv. And, and Andy's jumping up and down like, like a happy little schoolgirl, going oh my gosh that was so great that was so great and I'm like what just happened in there I don't get it (laughs) and it was kind of the precursor to the wrestling shtick that he would do where he would get somebody in the audience to argue with him and then he'd get into the argument so and he goes great we're going to do this again next week and it's like it's one in the morning at the improv and I'm not getting paid and I've got to I've got to go to work in the morning and I can't do this so um, I'm glad I had that opportunity. Uh, and then like another PS to the Andy story is he had told me that he just got hired for uh, a sitcom and he really didn't want to do it. But his his manager, who was George Shapiro, who was Carl Reiner's nephew, uh, said, do it. It's good for your career. You'll get more exposure. And he says, I'm doing this horrible sitcom. Don't even bother to watch it. And it was Taxi. So I didn't watch the first season of Taxi. And then it turned out I wound up marrying one of the actors who was on the first season of Taxi. (laughs) So it all does come back together again. Yeah. Yeah. Randall Carver is your husband. Played John Burns on the first season of Taxi. Uh Uh-huh. Did he share your impression of Andy working with him? And he was there on the day that there was the big blow up and they they show that in the movie man on the moon that where jim carrey played andy um but the producers on friday had said um andy's taking the week off and there's going to be somebody coming in to play a character he might look like andy but it's not andy don't address Uh him as andy and his idea was to cause chaos which he did um the second day he brought two hookers to the set and um, the security guards threw him out of Paramount. And sadly, Tony Danza has a whole video of this somewhere, and he can't find it. Oh, it's just man. another one of those happenings that Andy liked to do to get get people to react, get feelings. And and Judd Hirsch and Tony and Jeff, they all hated it. Danny loved it. <clears throat> Mary Lou didn't like it. Randy thought it was hysterical. Yeah. He got it. Yeah. And I guess what the producer did, which Ed Weinberger fired 
that is that alter ego character, Tony yeah. Clifton. And then the next day, Andy comes back as if none of this ever happened. No. Hi, guys. How'd it go? Yeah. Okay. Now, that's <laughs> bizarre behavior. But then again, everything about Andy was bizarre. Uh, you know, you mentioned in the book, he was a health nut, never smoked, never drank. And, you know, he died of what, lung cancer at 35, something like that. Yeah. Um, he, he ate like one of the things you know, like you try to get along with somebody. He ate raw cashews. And I tried like, mm, these are delicious. It tasted like paste, but I'm trying to get along and be friends with them and stuff. But um, when Randy knew Andy, um, sometimes after being at the improv or something, they'd go out to Theodore's and have like the, he'd have the largest slice of chocolate cake. That was, that was his, that was his downfall was chocolate cake. And, you know, you could sometimes see even his complexion was a little ruddy, probably from having too much sugar. Uh But, um, and, and also as, as you know, but um, others might not is part of the gag of Tony Clifton is it wasn't always Andy being Tony Clifton. So, so people were coming to see Andy and Andy wasn't even there. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Strange guy. Very strange guy. He used to be a a bus boy at Jerry's Deli in the Valley, like one night a week, even when he was doing taxi and everything else. It's like if you went to Jerry's Deli at 10 o'clock on Wednesday night, there he was in a T-shirt, you know, with a bucket and he was bussing tables and things. And that that was that was what he did. I also understand from people who worked with him that he like had a photographic memory and could memorize a script in like two minutes and, and just have it. Have it and and massage it into what it needed to be. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the things I didn't know about him until I read Bill Zemi's book is that um, he worked with Norman Wexler, the filmmaker. And one of the things that Wexler liked to do was to get genuine dialogue for situations when he was writing screenplays. And he would have Andy go someplace with a tape recorder and have some kind of a, like, um, this one of the things was pretend this donut shop was being robbed and Andy would record what was going on while, while Norman Wexler's he and his people uh, staged, you know, a fake robbery, but got genuine reactions from the people who thought they were being robbed. And then Wexler would use that dialogue in whatever screenplay he was working on. So I'm, I'm thinking Andy probably was inspired to do his art because of, he saw how genuine it was when Norman was getting the reactions. Yeah. I saw him once at the comedy store. He was in the main room. And for the first act, as if it was his opening act, it was Tony Clifton. And he comes out and and it is just this really mean-spirited, dyspeptic, horrible comic who wasn't really funny and was very adversarial at people and at first you go oh oh, this is a uh an andy kaufman bit okay this is kind of interesting for five minutes 
And this went on for like <laughs> half hour. Yeah. <laughs> and you're sitting there going like, Jesus Christ already, okay? This this stopped being fun 20 minutes ago. <laughs> that ends, there's an intermission, and then Andy comes back as Andy and does Mighty Mouse and does the whole Andy Kaufman act and take everybody out for cookies and that sort of thing. But uh, he was just impervious to to people just shouting at him and you know being really angry and and I thought to myself well okay you can say this is artistic this is performance art but on the other hand you know I'm paying money yeah <laughs> you know I'm paying good money not to be uh, abused and this is all for his own entertainment and for the money I spend I should be the one who is entertained. But but look at all these years later, you're still telling the story. And that's sure. Part, yeah, that's, no, that's exactly. Part of genius. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I felt exactly. that way about about Chuck Barris also, where when, when people know that I that I knew Chuck, the, the one question everybody asks is, well, so do you think he was a CIA agent? Because Chuck went around telling people that. Right. And I love that these legends live on after our friends are no longer here. Yeah, he's co-conspirator number seven, I think, isn't he? I think so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you work for Chuck Barris. Uh, something else you and I have in common. Mm-hmm. We were both on the dating game, although you were probably picking The Bachelor. Twice I got to be The Bachelorette. What about you? Oh, I was The Bachelor, and I've told this story on the podcast already too many times but yeah i i was on twice i got on the alumni show because i was funny and then i was supposed to be on the nighttime show and i got thrown off why <laughs> why because my dad worked at abc and oh. chuck barris found out about it and they they threw me off uh, where were the, where were your dates where did you get to go the first date was the daytime version of the show and I, I won a very nice man, and we went to San Diego to commemorate Cabrillo's landing. So that was- oh wow, and, wow! Uh, oh, the- I would have kicked myself if I was a bachelor <laughs> who didn't get picked for that. And the woman who was our chaperone looked like Cher from like the Sunny and Cher era. I mean, uh-huh. she was hot she had the long fingernails the black hair the crop top and being at an event where there were always a bunch of sailors around she was attracting a lot of attention and the second date because when you were when you were female under 21 they always gave you a female chaperone i think legally they had to do that because we had to share the room with the chaperone the second date um i the guy i won uh, Jim Lang says, and you've won a fabulous vacation to the Bahamas. So I hugged the guy and I said, where are the Bahamas? <laughs> <laughs> and then he took off um, on his own private adventures. And I, I had a great time. I learned to scuba dive. Um, I was exchanging Christmas cards with a lady I met for over 30 years on the trip. Uh, the woman that was my chaperone was um, a very elderly woman 
who liked to drink a lot and snored a lot. And I tried to sleep on the balcony, but they were like lightning and thunderstorms. So I wound up taking all the blankets and cushions off the bed and slept in the closet with the door closed because it was so distracting. (laughs) (laughs) You worked for Chuck Barris too? I worked with them on developing game shows. Um, It's kind of how I got my first taste of game shows because when I got involved with the Barris organization. I actually dated one of the people that worked for the Barris organization. After was it was came. it uh, executive number one or executive number two or executive number three? He was a darling man who was a photographer, Vince Longo. And he actually took me to see the Rocky Horror Show at the Roxy with Tim Curry. So I will okay. forever be grateful for that date. Uh, but we would do game show run-throughs and they started the gong show a week before I started as a page. So I kind of felt like I knew some of the people when I got there, it was a very comfortable situation. And, uh, and one day I'm, I'm doing a tour in the hallway and one of the pages comes up to me and says, I'm taking over your tour. Chuck Barris needs you. So I'm thinking, Ooh, what kind of emergency is this? And I, I run backstage and Chuck is giggling and standing backstage. And he says, stand right here. And when the curtain opens, walk out, you'll know what to do. And music starts up and I'm like, huh, what, what? And um, Chuck does the introduction. He goes, and I'm I'm standing with a a row of other women. And he says, uh, hey, everybody, these are the the ladies from NBC. Aren't they a fine looking group of women? Uh, Ladies, introduce yourselves. And so we just all start shaking hands with each other. And that was the opening bit for the show. So I had my 15 seconds of fame on the gong show. Uh Uh-huh. You gravitated towards game shows. What makes a good game show? I know you were there was that that thing on ABC about game shows, that that documentary series, and you were on it quite a bit, quoted. So you you're a talking head, you're you're an expert. <laughs> you qualify. Coming from one talking head to another, I, I thank you for that. Uh-huh. um yeah that was called the game show show and i think it's still available on hulu i imagine it is everything is still available i imagine if the writer's strike doesn't end soon it'll be available on abc again (laughs) (laughs) uh but my idea of a good game show very simply is something that makes you stop what you're doing and want to know the answer and It doesn't have to be a smarty pants answer like on Jeopardy. It can be something as simple of uh, a family feud question. Name the most hated person in America. You know, it could be it it doesn't have to be something that's a brain buster, but you just have to you you have to spark somebody's interest. I like to think of it. I like to think of it as water cooler conversation. Uh, and, And one of the things when you write game show, which I write game show questions, that's one of my survival jobs is there's something that we do that's called a frill. So if, if you say like um, the, the, the most hated person in the country is, and you give the answer, you might give, well, not the family feuds a bad example because there's not a source, but if you, uh, if you have a source of your information, then you back it up on why it's that answer. So uh, it, it, and and game shows, you were talking about the fact that you got bumped from the dating game. Game shows used to be kind of the Wild West, but they actually do have 
broadcast standards and compliance and practices in place. So sure, after all of the quiz show scandals of the 50s, yes. Yeah, and it and it used to be that we would all basically be locked in a room writing so that the material wouldn't get out somehow. And now because of the internet, a lot of the writers are able to work from home and send their material through secure portals so that they can write that way. Uh, but I, I love the idea that if somebody's on a game show, that they have a great story to tell afterward, even if they lost. I, I hope they have a really, really good experience with it. And one, one of the people uh, who became a page at NBC, he was a contestant on Wheel of Fortune. Great looking guy, Al. And the, the men loved him. The women loved him. They didn't want him to get away. And they approached him and said, here, fill out this application. We like you. And within 12 weeks, he had already gotten to that next level of a, like a junior executive because he was so smart and so good. Okay, there is part one of my two-part interview with Shelley Herman. Again, her book is called My Peacock Tale, Secrets of an NBC Page, and it's available wherever you get books, which is online. Anyway, uh, next week, we talk more about game shows, what makes a good game show contestant. Also, a couple of uh, sleazeballs, like Bill Cosby and McLean Stevenson. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, she co-hosted monster truck rallies on ESPN. i got to ask her about that. And also the world of infomercials. So all of that and more next week. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. My email address, should you wish to get in touch with me, is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Also available on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where you can see my cartoons. So come back next week for part two with Shelley Herman right here on Hollywood and Levine. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.